Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. Each week since the outbreak of the pandemic, I've hosted a conference call to discuss aspects of COVID-19. The discussion follows a unique format. Each speaker only gets six minutes. This keeps the conversation concise, interesting, and informative. After everyone has had a chance to speak, there is a question and answer period. At the end of the program, I ask each speaker to spend a minute to discuss something that they are optimistic about. Our first speaker today will be Ido Tavori, who is an Associate Professor of Sociology at NYU. You may recall that Ido spoke on what happens next a couple of months ago when he discussed the challenges that the Orthodox Jewish community was facing with social distancing. Ido has previously researched HIV prevention methods in Malawi, an African country with a terrible AIDS epidemic. I asked Ido to apply what he learned in Malawi about condom use to teach us what to expect here as public health officials try to implement mask wearing and social distancing for COVID. Our second speaker is Patrick Sharkey, who is a professor of sociology and public affairs at Princeton University. He is the author of Uneasy Peace, The Great Crime Decline, The Renewal of City of Life, and The Next War on Violence. Since the death of George Floyd, there's been much more urban unrest and a substantial rise in violence in American cities. I asked Patrick to speak about what we should do to reduce violent crime in America in the context of evolving policing. The program then segues from sociology to emerging markets. The first speaker in this segment is Alejandro Werner, who is the director of the Western Hemisphere Department at the IMF. Alejandro previously has served as the Undersecretary of Finance and Public Credit in Mexico. Before the pandemic, I would visit the IMF twice a year to gauge the state of affairs in emerging markets, and hearing from Alejandro was always fascinating because he analyzes the major Latin American countries like Brazil, Mexico, and Colombia. I've asked Alejandro to discuss COVID's impact on Latin America. Our next speaker is Miguel Quiguel, who is the former president of Banco Hipotecario, which is one of the largest mortgage banks in Argentina. I first befriended Miguel in 1996 when he was the Undersecretary of Finance and Chief Advisor to the Minister of the Economy of Argentina. Miguel will speak about how COVID is affecting the Argentine economy. The next speaker is Hurley Dotti, who is the founder and co-CEO of ECP Private Equity, which is the leading private equity manager focused exclusively on Africa. Hurley and I worked together at Salomon Brothers as our careers overlapped in trading derivatives, Brazil fixed income, and Japanese securities. You may recall hearing from Hurley in our second What Happens Next when he discussed issues of public health in Africa. Today, I've asked Hurley for an update on the economies in Africa. Our final speaker is Lee Bukite. Lee is a retired partner from Cleary Gottlieb's Teen in Hamilton, where he focused on sovereign debt restructurings. Lee has made a career of having a front seat at these complex negotiations as he typically represented the countries who were experiencing financial distress. I've known Lee for 25 years and can say that he is by far the most knowledgeable and most entertaining attorney on sovereign debt restructurings. I've asked Lee the question, are we on the cusp of a systemic sovereign debt crisis? That is our agenda for today. Next week, what happens next will focus on gang violence, the history of public health, and the controversy over monuments. I am particularly excited about two Sundays from now, August 30th, as this will be the special episode on young adults. We will have 10 young adults discuss for three minutes each. 
their personal challenges in our COVID world. We will also have three adults to discuss college admissions, the ACT, and youth mental health. All right, the introduction is over. Let me turn it over to our first speaker, Ito Tavari, a professor in the sociology department at NYU. Ito, fire away. Okay, thank you, Larry, for the introductions. Uh, an associate professor at NYU in sociology. Um, and what I'm going to talk about today is about uh, condoms and masks. So part of my work uh, previously um, in my last year sociologist has been working in sub-Saharan Africa and especially in Malawi, uh, where I worked uh, for about five years. Um, and at the time that I worked, Malawi had about 14% um, HIV positive people um, in Malawi, which is, which is a huge pandemic and a huge epidemic and crisis. Um, and what, one of the things that I set up to study is, um, well, why don't people use condoms? And there's a lot of uh, talk about how uh, Africans and especially rural Africans don't know about condoms and, and it's about ignorance and a lot of money goes to educate. Uh, people in Malawi, and as we, me and my co-author have found out very, um, you know, very quickly, this was not the case. People knew exactly uh, what condoms did. They knew that uh, they were more or less efficient, as I'll get to, at um, protecting from HIV. So why didn't they use it? And what we found through interviews and through these journal diaries that we had people um, collect in villages is that there are a few things going on. Well, first of all, and that might not surprise you, it was just not fun or not as much fun. So that was one thing. Uh, the other thing which was actually crucial was that condoms seemed, at least some people in Malawi, believe that although they may protect them from HIV, they have their own risks, right? So some people were talking about how condoms cause cancer or cause ulcers and that are dangerous in themselves. But perhaps the most important thing that I think that we found was that even if people were pro-condom and, and, and thought that it would protect them, when the time came, it was incredibly hard to put them on. And again, this is not very, very different from, uh, from, an, from the situation of the countries, but it is slightly different because putting on a condom signified that you don't trust the partner or that you potentially don't trust the partners that you have. You think that they've had unprotected sex. You think that they might have AIDS. And that was an incredibly hard thing for people to signal, even in, if they started relationships. In other words, in order to show that you love somebody or that you potentially love somebody, you needed to show that you trust them. But in order to trust someone, you couldn't use a condom, right? So, um, so even if you, in surveys, knew exactly what was going on and said that you were pro-condom, it was incredibly hard to put one uh, when the time came. Um, in that sense, it's a little bit like uh, a study that was made about uh, Christmas gifts, where they found out that whatever you think about Christmas gifts, when the Christmas time comes, uh, people usually buy presents to their in-laws because whatever you think ideologically, if you don't buy your in-laws a present, this is going to be a problem. Okay, so, so this was a study in Malawi. Um, and I think the interesting thing that convinced me that I could talk in this uh, case here 
was the parallels between condoms and masks. Uh, and and there are really, really, I think, interesting parallels that may be important for public health. So obviously, on the most basic level, um, the fact that you know masks can be uncomfortable is obvious. Uh, and and we've also uh, seen how the question of masks has been politicized in the United States. The question whether uh, you wear or don't wear a mask has come to uh, signify, at least for certain people, what kind of person are you and what group of people do you belong to? So, so far, I think that's not very surprising and, and we've seen that. But I think one aspect that has been missing is what happens in intimate gatherings. And I'm talking here especially about gatherings with close friends and family. So anecdotally, we know that a lot of kind of super spreader events are family gatherings and, you know, good friends that are having a get together after a long time. The problem here, I think, and this is what I think the, uh, the question of content use can teach us, that whatever you do or don't do has a meaning about that entails the relationship you have with other people. So if somebody takes off a mask in a, in a, in a family gathering to keep the mask on, becomes incredibly hard interactionally because it comes to be seen as a signal of a lack of trust, right? And especially there's a, the kind of relationship between the, the, uh, the question of the political connotations of the wearing of the mask and the kind of question of trust and intimacy in intimate gathering, in these kind of close gatherings, I think exacerbate them or, or, or make it much harder for people to actually put on a mask. And I think this kind of aspect of, of, kind of, of, of public health and how to, to deal with questions of public health is something that we have yet to think about seriously. Thank you very much. Thank you, that is really interesting. Um, we'll come back and take care of that in the Q&A some more. Our next speaker is uh, Patrick Sharkey. Patrick is Professor of Sociology and Public Affairs at Princeton, and he's going to talk to us about violent crime in American cities. Patrick, go ahead. Thanks, Larry. I love hearing about Ito's work. That was really, that was really fun to get that update. So, uh, hi, everyone. It's great to be with you today. Uh, the, there are three things I'm going to ask you to keep in your head. The, the problem I'm dealing with, the, the question, and, and my answer here. Here's the problem. Violence has fallen roughly by half since the early 1990s, but the methods that we've relied on to generate the crime drop have come with staggering costs. And I, I wrote a book a couple of years ago, as Larry mentioned, on how the drop in violence has changed city life in the US. And, and I reached two conclusions among others, but the two main conclusions. First, the greatest benefits of the crime drop were experienced in the most disadvantaged communities and by the most disadvantaged segments of the population. Second, the methods that we've relied on to respond to violence have generated tremendous costs and the greatest costs have also been concentrated among the most disadvantaged segments of the population. Uh, these costs have become more visible over time. We're seeing them right now. They come in the form of intensive surveillance, uh, mass incarceration, and the kind of aggressive and sometimes violent policing that has received so much attention over the past couple months. Uh, so that's the problem. Violence has fallen to historically low levels, but the methods that we've used to get here to generate the crime drop, to deal with violence, have come with staggering costs. 
So when we acknowledge and document both the benefits of the crime drop, which is really what my book focuses on, and the costs of the methods that we've used to generate it, we're left with a question, or, or, or two questions, really. One, how do we maintain and extend the decline of violence so that it reaches every neighborhood and every city? Secondly, how do we do so with a different model, a model that no longer relies on brute force policing, on mass incarceration, on the methods that we just are, are that have become our default answer to how do we deal with this surge of violence right at this moment? Okay, so I've given you the problem and the question. My answer is to shift from a model that is guided by the goal of punishment toward a model guided by the goal of investment. Shift from a model that relies on law enforcement as a central institution responsible for community well-being to a model that relies on local organizations and residents. Now, this is the important part. I'm making this argument not because it's politically convenient or because it's the way I think the world should work, but I'm making it because we have a very large evidence base and a growing evidence base indicating that residents and local organizations have always had the greatest capacity to control violence in their own communities. So let me quickly describe that, that evidence. The first part, it came from a, a national study that I did with uh, graduate students um, where we were looking at all the things that changed in the 1990s as violence fell. And a, a lot of changes are well known. There was one change that I wasn't aware of. The nonprofit sector exploded in the 1990s. This was a period where uh, local organizations mobilized on a large scale, not just to confront violence, but to build stronger neighborhoods. So new organizations were formed usually in, in the form of norm, nonprofits uh, to create after school programs, to make parks and playgrounds safer, uh, to, to kind of take back city streets and sidewalks, to provide treatment for addiction and mental illness, to build community centers, health centers, and so forth. So with my students, we estimated the causal impact when nonprofits expand or proliferate within a city. And we did it by exploiting natural experiments that led to more funding becoming available for the nonprofit sector in specific cities at specific moments, at, excuse me, at specific moments, and then estimating the effect of changes in nonprofits on changes in violent crime. Uh, the punchline, we, we found that in a typical city of about 100,000 people, every 10 new nonprofits formed to deal with violence or to, to uh, push for other supports in a community that would build a stronger neighborhood, okay? So this isn't every kind of non nonprofit, but community-oriented nonprofits meant to deal with problems like violence or housing or after-school programs. Uh, every 10 new nonprofits led to about a 9% reduction in the violent crime rate. So that is not, I'm not arguing that these organizations created the, the crime drop on their own, but I'm arguing that they should stand alongside the rise in incarceration, the rise in police forces and private security forces as, as central changes that, that contributed to the crime drop. Okay, these findings from this national study are bolstered by the growing number of programs run by, or, or evaluations of programs uh, run by community organizations as these programs have been evaluated in a rigorous way through randomized controlled trials, we found more and more evidence that they can have an extraordinarily strong impact on violence. As an example, the Becoming a Man program in Chicago, which combined cognitive behavioral therapy with after-school sports programs, reduced arrests for violent crimes by 45 to 50% among the young people who were assigned to take part. Assignments in summer jobs 
uh, again, through an RCT, reduces violence by 43% over the following 16 months. The establishment of business improvement districts uh, reduces violence by 11%. Redesigning abandoned lots in a randomized way in Philadelphia reduced violence in and around those areas by 39%. So these results are consistent with a longstanding conclusion from urban sociology that residents and local organizations have the greatest capacity to regulate what goes on in their communities and to control violence. But we've never given these groups the commitment or the resources that they need to play a central role in confronting violence. So I'll stop there. Thanks, Larry. That's great. Okay. Um, we're, this is a part of the program where we segue away from sociology to what's going on in emerging markets. And our first speaker will be Alejandro Werner. He is director of the Western Hemisphere Department at the IMF. Uh, he previously served as the Undersecretary of Finance and Public Credit of Mexico. Uh, Alejandro will discuss the COVID's impact on the economies of Latin America. Alejandro, you're up. Thanks, Larry, uh, both for the invitation and for uh, putting together this very interesting set of conferences. So first of all, I mean, uh, our last uh, growth projection for Latin America was done in June. At that time, we were expecting Latin American economies to contract by 9.4% in 2020 and to recover in 2021. Uh, Latin America is going to be the region that will have the worst uh, economic performance. And why is that? I mean, first, Latin America was already the region that was expected to have the lowest growth rate uh, before COVID. Secondly, the pandemic has become uh, much uh, deeper and long-lasting than originally expected in Latin America for, for many reasons. Uh, I would say that starting with the uh, region with a weak uh, rule of law, I mean, also the implementation of lockdowns, quarantines, et cetera, has not had the effect that we have seen in other countries. Also, the high uh, pockets of uh, uh, population concentrations in many parts of Latin America have significantly increased contagion, uh, uh, weak uh, health systems, uh, uh, and also weak uh, governments, uh, and, and low credibility of the governments have significantly uh, weakened the capacity of health policy to, to impact this. Uh, I would say that since July, both for the world economy and for Latin America, we have seen high-frequency economic activity indicators coming in slightly better than, than expected and that uh, most likely will lead to upwards uh, revisions in, in, in our growth forecast when we update it in, in October. I think in Latin America, when you look at uh, incoming data in Brazil, in Mexico, point to a slightly better outcomes. We have these countries uh, contracting between minus 10 and minus 9%. There might be slight upwards re uh, revisions. Argentina is going to be doing worse than our original uh, forecast. Uh, but overall, in Latin America, there might be some, some, some small uh, upward uh, revision. However, when we look at Latin America from a medium-term perspective, this is going to be the worst recession since uh, the world, uh, the Great Depression. Uh, GDP per capita in 2025 is still going to be below the level of GDP per capita in 2015 in Latin America. And therefore, once the pandemic is over, Latin America is going to find itself with higher levels uh, of poverty. Uh, worse income distribution, a very uh, uh, complicated fiscal and, and debt situation, uh, social tensions that were erupting in Latin America in the last two or three years, and they have been put a little bit on hold uh, during the pandemic. But once we go back to normal, 
and in an environment with a worst income distribution, high uh, poverty, this will come back uh, uh, to concern us. And obviously also political polarization. If you look at Mexico, you look at Brazil, you look at Argentina, uh, you look at Peru. Uh, so, so, so the level of political polarization. So, so, so you have huge economic challenges and not uh, uh, the best environment to reach significant consensus. To, to kind of reformulate uh, the social contract in, in these economies. Turning to policy responses, uh, within the, 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 uh, the small fiscal space that Latin American economies have, they have many of them have found the possibility to launch some uh, fiscal support programs. On average in the region, the fiscal mostly expenditure and some tax reduction uh, size of programs has been of the order of 4%, compared, let's say, with 15% in the US, but still for the region has been something relatively good. Uh, Quasi-fiscal uh, packages through uh, development banks, through guarantees, et cetera, have been of the order on average of 3%. And the, the range within countries has been countries like Brazil and Peru doing 3 or 4% of GDP fiscal support and maybe 3% of quasi-fiscal, and countries like Mexico doing very, very little. On the monetary policy side, uh, uh, those countries with uh, credible central banks have been able to reduce uh, uh, interest rate, some of them almost to zero, other ones to two, three percent, like Colombia and, and Brazil, and Mexico still with rates of 470, uh, 4.50. There's still, uh, for these countries, some space to reduce rates, and all of them have announced their intention to do uh, aggressive use of their balance sheet, basically to, so far, to contain disorderly market conditions. We have not seen QE, and, and what I interpret as QE is basically central banks targeting a significant reduction of the long part of the yield curve. Basically, they have only intervened to moderate very disorderly market conditions so far, but I think in the future, we might see Latin America central banks being a, a more aggressive in a, a launching QE uh, programs. On the debt and fiscal side, as I said, I mean, we're going to see increases in deficits of the order between 4 and 10, 12 percentage points in GDP, leading to double-digit increases in debt-to-GDP ratios. So far, many countries have used cash buffers uh, to deal with this, but in the future, obviously, countries will have to uh, either consolidate very rapidly, that will not be good for, for, for growth and the economy, I, or a gradual adjustment with a medium-term fiscal anchor, uh, or we're going to run into, uh, into debt problems. It's important to, to say that many countries are much more reliant on domestic debt, and therefore, to deal with these uh, debt problems, they will have many more instruments uh, than before. Finally, from the IMF, we have lent $5 billion in emergency assistance and $55 billion on contingent trade lines for Colombia, Peru, and Chile. Thanks, Larry. That's it. Okay. All right. Um, our next speaker is Miguel Quiguel. Miguel is uh, Managing Director of EconViews. That's his uh, company he founded that does economic consulting. He's also Professor of Economics at the University of Turcuato de Tela. He is the former president of Banco Hipotecario, and he's the former Undersecretary of Finance of Argentina. Miguel is going to speak about Argentina and COVID. Go ahead, Miguel. Thank you, Larry. It's a pleasure to be with you in this exciting series that you put together. Um, 
I'm going to speak about Argentina, and I wonder why Argentina, and probably because Argentina is a basket case. When you look at the country, um, we, we have had uh, over 27 recessions in the last six years. So half of the time, Argentina in the last six years has been essentially in recession. We have uh, seven major macroeconomic crises, and the last one and in the last 10 years, we had three defaults, 2001, 2014, and now the, the last one in 2020. We had a record of, of inflation in the world, and I mean, there are, too, there are too many reasons why probably Argentina has become the case that Larry wanted to, to look at. Now, how did the pandemic find Argentina? Clearly in a very bad situation. When the pandemic started, Argentina was experiencing 10 years of, of uh, stagnation, in fact, our GDP today is probably the same as in 2007, and GDP per capita has gone back to where it was in the early 90s. Um, with the other thing, Argentina had um, an inflation already running into two digits. Uh, the average inflation probably for the last 10 years has been around 25%, with peaks of 55%. Argentina, when the pandemic started, had no access to any type of credit. Um, and clearly was in a very tough uh, situation in terms of monetary and fiscal policy. Now, what has been the response everywhere to the pandemic? Essentially trying to provide a stimulus, short-term stimulus to, to minimize the impact on the population and on the economy. Uh, Argentina couldn't do it as other countries for, for two reasons. First, we couldn't use fiscal policy because there was no financing. Uh, the deficits were already large, and Argentina could not access to financing because it was uh, already in default in domestic debt and very quickly got in default on, on foreign debt. So the only source of financing was the central bank, which has been provided financing, but with two risks. First, the, the inflation, which was the second problem, which limits Argentina capacity to lower interest rates. Argentina couldn't lower interest rates because inflation was extremely high already. Uh, and second, uh, when the central bank tried to sterilize this de deficit, this printing money, we got into the problem of, um, of building uh, central bank debt. So clearly Argentina was wrong-footed when all this started. Uh, nevertheless, and, and on top of that, we had a very, very strict lockdown. Where are we now? Um, Argentina has, I, I would say, has started a recovery, a V-shaped recovery as most countries. But in spite of that, there's going to be a drop in GDP of around 13%. That's what we expect at the moment. Um, so it's going to recover, yes, it's going to recover as most countries recover, essentially a rebound from the, from the fifth uh, underground. Uh, and we'll see how, what it, how it recovers, time will say. Um, what are the challenges from now on? The first challenge is to restore long-term growth, which will be extremely difficult because it's easy to get the rebound. It's very difficult to recover growth when you have a history of crisis, when you have a government that distrusts the, the private sector and doesn't send clear signals, uh, and when you have a history of, of inflation and fiscal deficits as Argentina has. Second problem is poverty. Our poverty rate has gone to around 45%. Um, of the population, which is high, almost as high as it got in the, deep, in the big depression of 2001. The third issue is 
to deal with inflation. Inflation today is a little bit dormant, dormant, I would say, at around 2% per month. But, you know, after printing, after seeing monetary growth of around 100% in the last few months, you would expect that inflation could well go to 50 or 60% again. The third issue is the exchange rate. We have an overvalued currency. We have a big uh, parallel market where the spread between the official market and the parallel market is roughly 70%, and the government is reluctant to devalue. So how do you get it down? Um, the third issue, and, and the, the, the fourth issue is uh, fiscal deficits, which at the moment are running at around 8% of GDP, and it's entirely financed by the central bank. How long can you expect that to last? So where are we now um, in terms of what we expect from now on? First, I think Argentina has just apparently reached an agreement with the bondholders, which we expect will be finished, and that would be the first, the first step towards um, getting the economy moving. And the next step is an agreement with the IMF. I don't know what Alejandro thinks about it, but it's a very, should be, I mean, one thing is the last two uh, programs that we had failed, ended in crisis. We had a new program probably coming up with challenges on the exchange rate, fiscal, uh, and, and inflation. So that's probably what's coming, and we'll see how it works this time. I'll stop here, and thank you very much. Thanks, Miguel. All right, we leave Latin America now, and we head over to Africa. Uh, Hurley Dotti will speak next. He is the founder and co-CEO of ECP Private Equity, the leading private equity manager focused exclusively in Africa. Uh, Hurley will speak about Africa's economy during this COVID crisis. Hurley, fire away. No, thank you very much, Larry. Um, I'd first like to start my remarks by reminding you that Africa is a very big and diverse place, 54 countries, a billion people, more land than the U.S., China and India and Western Europe combined, and therefore it's, of course, hard to do it justice in just six minutes, but I'll try. So what's the current extent of the crisis in Africa? Overall, Africa has about 16% of the world population. The continent currently has 1.1 million COVID cases, which is only about 5% of the world. And African countries have reported only about 25,000 deaths, about 3% of the world's total of 750,000 deaths. The rate of increase in cases uh, seems to have slowed, and this is mainly driven by a decline in new cases in South Africa, which has about half of all the reported cases. So the death rate is low compared to other parts of the world, despite Africa's you know, poor uh, healthcare infrastructure. Now, the, the young population in Africa is almost certainly one of the main reasons for this. More, more than 60% of Africans are under age 25. The median age of the population in Italy, for instance, is 47 years. In Africa as a whole, it's under 20 years. Another reason is that health problems common in richer regions like obesity and type 2 diabetes are, are less common in Africa. Scientists are also exploring the hypothesis that Africans may have more exposure to milder coronaviruses, which may be providing some defense against COVID-19. Another possibility is that regular exposure to malaria and other infectious diseases could prime Africans' immune system to fight these new pathogens. A final big reason for the low number of cases in Africa is significant underreporting reporting lack of, uh, due, due to lack of testing. The U.S., uh, for instance, has completed per 1,000 uh, people about 193 tests. South Africa has done about 56 tests per 1,000, while Nigeria is down at less than two tests per 1,000. 
we can look at uh, Kenya, for example, a population of about 52 million, so twice the size of Texas, done 400,000 tests with 30,000 positives, of which over 80% had no symptoms at all, and it's had less than 500 deaths. Based on antibody tests, Kenya estimates it could have up to 1.9 million infections, yet Kenyan hospitals are not overwhelmed, and there don't seem to be thousands of unexplained deaths. In terms of actions taken by African governments, most African governments acted relatively quickly and took strong measures early on, closing borders, restricting travel, imposing curfews, shutting restaurants. But these uh, measures are hard to maintain anywhere, but and particularly in less developed countries where people have little savings and governments can't just pay people to stay at home. So many of the restrictions have been loosened, although most schools are still shut. Despite the hardships placed on the people, there have been really relatively little unrest or rioting and few reports of increased crime. But like in, like, like in Latin America, social tensions in some countries could certainly reemerge without economic growth. While the health effects and death toll have been relatively low by world standards, uh, the e economic effects have also been heavy. The World Bank estimates that Sub-Saharan Africa will track, contract by 2 to 5 percent in 2020. Better than most regions, but it is its first recession in 25 years and could push millions of people back into extreme poverty. The decline stemmed from uh, containment measures, but also from disruptions in trade, reduced exports of commodities, and reductions in direct foreign investments, remittances, and tourism. My company, Emerging Capital Partners, we have private equity investments in 22 portfolio companies operating in 40 African countries in a variety of industries, so I can give you a broad but unscientific view of some of the business trends on the continent. One is that clearly the effect on individual industries has really varied widely. Our cell phone tower businesses in Nigeria, our high-speed internet businesses in East Africa saw increases in demand as people worked from home and stayed in touch without travel. Our university businesses, on the other hand, have been hard hit. We had to close all the campuses in each of our four countries. And similarly, our quick service restaurant business in Kenya had to close all of its restaurants. And then when we reopened about six weeks later, we were at 40% capacity due to uh, distancing restrictions. Another thing we see is that the crisis is accelerating trends toward digitalization in some industries. For instance, our remittance business, migrants used to send wages back to their home country, maybe with their cousin or with a bus driver. Once they closed those borders, they had to switch to our, our, our app, which they found cheaper and, and safer to use, and that's helped them. Our universities were able to shift up to 70% of their students to distance learning. Our restaurant chain was able to expand its, offline, uh, its online offering and delivery business, for instance. Another thing we've seen is like in developed markets, the crisis is really giving a relative advantage to big companies over small companies. Larger companies just have more access to the capital. They can adjust their models. They can really get better terms from their uh, suppliers and delay pe uh, payments to the creditors. And looking forward, how long uh, before things uh, return to normal and what will the new normal look like? If it's relatively soon, we expect a pretty quick return to growth in Africa. The African informal sector is large and resilient, and a return to world growth will lift demand for the African commodities. So what strategy will Africa follow? The really options are pretty few for governments. They have limited resources. It's also clear that Africa is going to be in the back of the line for any vaccines that are developed. And if tens of millions of Africans have already uh, been infected, yet death rates are low, 
governments may have no choice but to try for, quote, herd immunity without a vaccine, letting the virus run its course, especially given that health uh, control measures uh, that cripple economies may be more harmful to public health in the long run. The next speaker uh, is going to discuss a bit about the debt situation in emerging markets. I'll end with some comments about Africa. For many countries, the biggest economic hit is in sectors that earn foreign exchange. Tourism, uh, for example, is about 10% of Tunisia's economy, and it's down 50%. It's also important and down sharply in Kenya, South Africa, and Mauritius. Other countries such as Nigeria, Zambia, and Algeria depend almost exclusively on commodities like oil and copper to earn FX and are obviously being hit by lower global demand. These hits to FX earnings combined with slowing economies and rising debt levels certainly could set the stage for a debt crisis in some, but certainly not all the uh, countries. A wild card this time will be the wild, wider role of Eurobonds uh, in Africa that have been issued, which are harder to renegotiate. And interestingly, the role of China, which has made some substantial loans to many African countries in recent years. And other creditors are going to be unlikely to agree to bail out if China doesn't uh, do the same. Thank you. Lots of stuff to talk about there. Okay, our final speaker is Lee Bukite. As I mentioned earlier, he's a retired law partner from Cleary Gottlieb, seen in Hamilton, and he's the world's leading expert on sovereign debt restructurings. Lee, take it away. Thank you, Larry, and uh, thank you for the invitation to speak on this distinguished panel. Uh, are we on the cusp of a systemic sovereign debt crisis, I fear the answer may be yes. And uh, in six minutes, let me try to make the case for that. We entered this pandemic <clears throat> with uh, uh, debt levels in most countries, uh, both in the developed and developing world, at uh, unprecedentedly high levels. Uh, much of that the result of stimulus measures that were taken after the financial crisis in 2008. We don't, we haven't been reading about it in the newspapers, uh, largely because uh, the central banks of the world over that same period have been running zero or near zero interest rate policies. So the cost of servicing those debt stocks, as colossal as they have become, uh, has not been uh, a particular uh, crisis. When this pandemic struck uh, in March, we saw what the economists call a sudden stop. That is a, an abrupt cessation of capital flows into many emerging market countries and indeed uh, about $100 billion coming out of them. Uh, in the uh, wake of that, the G20 countries announced what they called a debt service suspension initiative, uh, calling on bilateral and commercial creditors to suspend uh, debt service payments uh, on external debt of the poorest countries, the 73 poorest countries, until the end of this year. <clears throat> I expect that initiative will be extended. Uh, but inevitably it will uh, run out at some point uh, next year. The truth is uh, we are facing uh, huge shrieking uncertainties uh, caused by this pandemic. When will the pandemic abate? And when it does, what will world export markets look like? What will commodity prices look like? When will tourism return? 
how much damage will be done to the economies of these countries? What will their tax base look like? When will their remittances uh, resume? And what strains will there be on the financial resources of the official sector to help these countries uh, come out of this situation? We are therefore confronted with the possibility that multiple countries uh, may find that they are uh, uh, holding unsustainable debt stocks uh, and will need to restructure those debt stocks more or less simultaneously. Uh, we haven't seen a situation like this since the 1980s. In the 1980s and early 1990s, there were some 27 countries that had to restructure their external debt at roughly the same time. Uh, the Latins still refer to it as the lost decade, uh, and the world then looked very different from how it looks now. The lenders in that era were exclusively commercial banks. Uh, there was considerable official sector intervention in order to keep the banks uh, 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 participating in the restructuring. <clears throat> Today, uh, most of the private debt is coming in the form of bonds, uh, and uh, the lenders are unregulated institutions. So that is the unknown. Uh, can the system, as we now know it, uh, tolerate 15, 20, 25 countries restructuring their debt more or less at the same time? Uh, and, and, and I think we just don't know the answer to that at this stage. I'll stop there. Thank you. Okay. Uh, Lee, I'll start with the questions for you right out of the box. Um, you know, in the 1980s, you know, when everyone was, all, all the Latins and many of the, the emerging market countries were simultaneously restructuring, it was done in the context of U.S. Treasury getting involved to, because um, it was, it would have meant the undercapitalization of our banks. We had the Brady Program. Um, here it's completely different. I think what you're trying to suggest is when we don't have one group of lenders, um, it's going to be very challenging to renegotiate with them at once. Um, it can be very, very slow, and it may also bleed into other countries that would not have had to restructure uh, for, because investors will fear lending to them. How do you kind of see... If it does, imagine we do have 25 countries. How will it affect the, the next 25 countries that have, have not restructured yet or will end up pushing them into the same problem? Well, it is possible that it could. Uh, I think if the lending markets saw 20 or 25 countries restructuring their debts, we could have a repeat of the sudden stop that we saw in March. And that, for many countries, would be catastrophic. Uh, no country in the 21st century borrows money with the expectation that it will repay it. If by repay you mean use current resources to settle a liability, it borrows money in the sure and certain hope that when that debt matures, it will be able to refinance it. It will go back into the market, borrow from someone else, uh, and, and so the hamster wheel keeps spinning. 
if the markets were to turn arthritic and cease lending, uh, many countries uh, could run down their reserves for a few weeks or maybe a few months, uh, but they would be facing uh, – they would have no choice uh, but to attempt to to restructure uh, their debt. Hurley was sort of talking about the role of China in all this. Um, and as you think, maybe thinking about the continent of Africa specifically, um, China has historically been not the best participant in some of the Paris Club debt. Uh, they've often tended not to want to have transparency. Um, they do seem to want to, they have been much more active at the IMF. Do you see the Chinese playing ball? Do, the, do you see the Chinese wanting to uh, help facilitate order in order to get their own claims paid? How do you see the advent of the Chinese as part of this new collective group in this restructuring process? Well, there's the, 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 that is the $64,000 question at the moment. There is some reason for optimism. The, the Chi Chinese, as part of the G20, supported the debt service suspension initiative. So they were participating uh, in that and have been participating. The question will be uh, when we get to the point of having to do full-scale debt restructurings for some of these countries, will the Chinese coordinate uh, either with the other bilateral lenders in the Paris Club uh, or with uh, commercial lenders, will they coordinate their debt restructuring activities? To date, the Chinese have been very jealous uh, of uh, their workouts uh, and have done them on a bespoke basis. They are not formally members of the Paris Club. Uh, they are observers there. Uh, but uh, at, if we were to go into a systemic emerging market debt crisis, it is fair both for the other bilateral lenders and the commercial lenders to say that uh, the world's largest bilateral creditor, China, uh, ought to be coordinating its activities with what everyone else is doing. Um, the, the other player who historically has been an important part is the IMF. Um, but the IMF hasn't really been a big player um, in the 1980s when the first major restructurings were being done. The IMF has, you know, limited resources. Um, how do you think, um, I'm going to ask you, Lee, and then I'm going to follow up with Alejandro, how do you think of the IMF's role in such a you know, global restructuring environment? And can they make a dent, or given the, the size of the problem, it's just going to be you know, throwing good money after bad? I don't think it's throwing good money after bad. It's simply <clears throat> uh, the IMF has substantial financial resources, but finite financial resources, something like a trillion dollars of firepower, but that is negligible if we were to face a systemic uh, sovereign debt crisis. More than 100 countries have asked the IMF for their rapid financing facilities in the face of the pandemic. That's more than half the membership of that organization. Um, if we were to see uh, a systemic crisis, I think the IMF would have to husband its resources uh, and 
go back to what it did in the 1980s, which was really to play a master of ceremonies role and crack the whip to keep other creditor groups and the sovereign debtors uh, moving in a coordinated way. Alejandro, what do you think about that? Yeah, Larry, I think, um, I mean, so far, on the back of the significant liquidity injections of advanced economy central banks, uh, the market uh, has have been distinguishing between countries that have a relatively solid fiscal and debt situation, like Chile, Peru, uh, I would say even Mexico, Colombia, uh, and, and they have had market access. They also have contingent trade lines from, from the fund, and some of them, uh, Mexico and Brazil, have swap lines with the Fed, and have had a almost continued uh, market access. Uh, so, so I'm making this distinction between, obviously, in, country, in countries in which eventually the situation will be the one one of insolvency, or highly or, or or high probability of insolvency. I think the role of the fund should be to play the master of ceremonies role that Lee was saying, and that master of ceremonies also includes to be a, an impartial a judge of what the medium-term capacity to repay of each of those countries, and then to finance the large budget deficit that countries will still need to have in 2020, 2021, uh, due to the fact that these economies will be starting to come out of the pandemic with a huge negative output gap, and therefore uh, with still the need to support households and, and, and firms, and also to support aggregate demand. So IMF resources should be destined to support aggregate demand and, and, and those that are most in need. And then the debt operations should provide liquidity and uh, uh, obviously uh, haircuts in those cases, liquidity support, and in those cases in which uh, countries are clearly insolvent, uh, significant haircuts to put these countries back on, on, on a solvency track but uh, I, th I think for this operation, the IMF uh, has a, a significantly large amount of resources, uh, but obviously uh, we have to use it wisely, and I think the most important thing is to support uh, uh, the economies and either to use uh, their operations to reprofile debt, and in those cases in which you have a very clear uh, uh, signal of debt and sustainability, like the case of Argentina and Ecuador, uh, haircuts. And that's a little bit what has happened. The case of Ecuador is a little bit more clear-cut. Simultaneously, Ecuador was uh, negotiating a new program with the IMF, and in two, two or three months, they actually closed the restructuring with the private uh, creditors, and I would say in a pretty efficient uh, way. The case of Argentina, as Miguel was saying, was more complicated. Argentina went... Uh, sequentially, they first dealt with private sector uh, creditors, and now uh, uh, they're saying they will come to the IMF to actually uh, uh, renegotiate the amortizations of the $44 billion uh, program that the, the Macri administration had in the context of the new program. But just to summarize, I think uh, the resources of the IMF are large, but are large to deal, let's say, with the flow problems and the stock problems, especially in those cases in which uh, it's uncertainty whether countries are, are uh, 
their debt are sustainable or not should be dealt through debt operations, either reprofiling or outright restructures. Miguel, just bringing to the conversation, um, certain countries are, have strategic importance. Uh, certain countries are, are basket cases or um, have substantial poverty and really deserve the money, but are not strategic. And you know, Argentina for a long time has has gone between sort of strategic and not strategic, and has not um, not been a force. Um, but do you think that the IMF will will treat, let's say, Mexico differently than some of the smaller uh, Central American and, and other Latin American countries, for example? And will the U.S. dictate how it will work, or do you think it, the U.S. will, if Mexico got into trouble, would find a way to? lend the money directly and intertwine the IMF only if necessary? I mean, you mean Argentina, probably or Mexico are you talking? Um, yeah, Mexico. Sorry? Mexico. I yeah. think, you know, the, the in the case of Mexico, I mean, Mexico can go directly to the to the U.S., I, I think, uh, which is different from what, what Argentina can do. Argentina, I think, is still should be a strategic country, it's the third largest economy in, in Latin America. And, and we, when Argentina was dealing with the IMF in the previous program, um, we thought, at least our view is that the U.S. play a critical role. So I think if one answer would be that if Mexico, if the U.S. wants to help Mexico or any other country in, in, in Latin America, uh, it can do it directly probably through the, the currency swaps. But most likely, they're going to use the IMF. I mean, they're going to use their clout in the IMF to provide assistance to, to countries like Mexico or, or to other countries. And if, if I may, I would like to make a short um, comment on, on least uh, um mentioning of the debt issues. I think that if you compare with other episodes, at least in Latin America, I think countries are much stronger in terms of, of their debt situation because they have a lot, of, much more of their debt is in domestic currency. It's not the case of Argentina. It's not the case of Ecuador, which are the two countries that restructure. To some extent, it's not the case of uh, Uruguay. But most countries, one of the reasons we haven't seen a collapse or many countries already defaulting and in fact getting debt, unattributed debt, is because you know they, although the debt stocks are high, uh, the structure of those debts is much better than in the past. And maybe, Lee, getting you back involved, um, we've talked about Latin America, we've talked a little bit about Africa, um, but what about some of the countries near Europe, um, which have historically had, some, had, had problems? Um, do you think the Europeans will intervene directly? Um, do you think, the IMF, because the, Europe has such a strong influence on the IMF, again, it will be the IMF to do it, or do you think that because of limitations of what, if Europe has its own problems, uh, that they will be less interested in helping out neighbors? Or much of Europe, partners? yeah, much of Europe, of course, uh, belongs to the uh, monetary union. So uh, they have the European Central Bank, and the European Central Bank in this crisis has shown itself uh, willing to purchase uh, sovereign bonds uh, in order to keep the yields on those bonds within a tolerable range, and that has allowed the countries uh, to continue to finance themselves in the market. 
I see no sign that that policy is going to change anytime soon. Um, so the, 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 the Eurozone uh, benefits in the same way that the United States has benefited from a central bank that has been willing to use its balance sheet uh, quite extensively in order to cushion uh, uh, the effects of this crisis. Early to, to bring you in now, um, you mentioned in week two that you knew that there were only a handful of ventilators in the entire country of Kenya and that it would have to either get to herd immunity pretty quickly, uh, but you were hopeful that because the population was so young, there was no African country that had more than 50 basis points uh, over like the age of 80, where uh, Italy had over 5 or 6% of its population over the age of 80. Given that the place is Africa is, is so young, and it, it seems that COVID doesn't seem to harm people under the age of 20, um, is this going to be one of those things where Africa is just going to luck out because of the nature of its population cohorts? Yeah, I mean, I think that's what it's looking like. I mean, the, the, the numbers seem to be showing that. And as I said, you know, most of the cases that are de de detected are in you know, relatively young people and they just don't have that much in the way of symptoms. And that's been what we've seen in our own portfolio companies where we've had, you know, across the, the portfolio, a couple hundred people test positive and, you know, you really have to stop them from coming to work by taking their, uh, their, their, uh, you know, keys away from them because they are, you know, are healthy and, and ready to go. So I think uh, for once, uh, you know, Africa has, uh, you know, and its uh, demographics have really been a benefit. And if it really isn't affecting the population, why, why are they doing much lockdowns at all? Why are they uh, not doing things to be let things run its course and not have to go through a, such a large, significant recession? Interesting question. I mean, I guess, first of all, you know, they, no one really knew what was coming and, you know, what, whether this was going to, the fact that there's uh, tropics was going to stop it or whether it was just going to roll through and, you know, would have happened pretty fast. Uh, I think there's also a reality that while the people are young, the politicians are, uh, are old and, uh, you know, probably uh, felt the, uh, the fear, you know, perhaps more than the, the, the average person did. Um, and, uh, you know, so I think that, that that was some of it, but, you know, I think you've seen many of the restrictions uh, uh, come off. Um, you know, it also does, things like travel, you know, come up less, the, the border closings, you know, where you see, you know, some xenophobia about, you know, whatever this is, we don't want the foreigners coming in and, and giving it to us. Um, you know, it's sort of a natural reaction, unfortunately, in almost all countries, but we certainly saw some of that in Africa. But uh, I think, you know, that, that has led to the, the lifting uh, of uh, many of the restrictions here. And, you know, it's now just a question if you can get the, the commodities out and the tourists back. And what Lee Bukai was talking about earlier was um, as soon as there was trouble, and this has always been true, um, capital flows to emerging markets from developing countries comes to, uh, or from the developed world, comes to a halt as money is needed back in the home country. And if anything, they call their loans and want to get the money back. Um, what are you seeing in terms of capital flows to Africa? Has 
I imagined starting in March there was um, a complete stop, if any, and maybe even a reversal out of Africa. But with stock markets almost literally at all-time highs now, have you seen uh, an opening? Is money starting to flow back into Africa? Um, how do your what are your investors thinking? Do they want to put more money to work in Africa? What's the, what's the gauge of the developed world's thoughts, and what are, what are the African nations and, and companies seeing in terms of their ability to continue to grow? I think that that is a good question, and the jury's still out on it. Um, you know, Africa is just less connected to the world market, so you don't see quite the initial effect of the markets crashing and people pulling the equities out or some mutual funds. Um, it tends to happen slower, and you tend to see it more as new flows just don't come. Uh, and I, you know, whether that's going to happen, I think, plays out over the next quarters. Um, you know, there, there's certainly been some pullback, uh, certainly initially. Um, and, you know, I think uh, probably we'll see in the next couple of quarters. We haven't – haven't felt like there's a much new money looking to come in yet, though, I, I, I would say. Uh, you know, and, and I think that is going to be an issue that uh, a lot of the, uh, the money, you know, money that, for instance, might have come in from the Gulf uh, is going to be dealing with their own problems uh, uh, there. Um, and so I think uh, from that standpoint, uh, we're probably, you know, that's really one of the difficulties that Africa is going to face in the next year is just uh, – uh, a lack of new money coming in. You also talked about, Hurley, the, um, the some of the changes that in the United States that we naturally did as well. Uh, we, you know, we bought a lot of new computers. We started working from home. Um, we did online Zoom education programs. Um, you know, we closed some restaurants and then reopened them to, you know, with fewer seats. Um, how is Africa dealing with this? Are, are they as nimble or even more nimble than we are in terms of adjusting their economic plans to this new reality? Another good question. I mean, obviously, Africa does have a large informal uh, sector, still large, you know, rural uh, areas. Uh, some of those are just little affected by, uh, by, by you know, these type of uh, decrees, uh, you know, the, in, in the uh, the formal sector, I think it was, you know, and African cities, uh, much like cities uh, uh, across uh, Europe or the U.S. in terms of the type of restrictions that they, that they put in, um, and the government, you know, can do them uh, uh, pretty quickly, and there's really not much political pressure against them doing that. Um, and, and so we, we did see a lot of those uh, uh, type of things. Um, and so they, they tend to be uh, you know, more autocratic and therefore uh, a bit more nimble, perhaps, than uh, than some other uh, places. Uh, but you know, have been able to you know take whatever measures uh, they wanted to. Now, in terms of whether people follow them, uh, that's another question. And you know, I think like everywhere else, you see people you know, followed it uh, uh, a lot for the first uh, month or six weeks. Uh, but now the you know, people are, are people and want to get back out. Uh, and, and socialize and, uh, you know, to some extent are, are doing that, especially when you, you know, don't see the hospitals uh, uh, filling up or the, you know, the grave diggers, uh, uh, you know, very busy. And just to kind of follow that up, because it's a nice segue into uh, Ito's conversation about um, 
condom use in Malawi. What what are you seeing in terms of social gatherings and mask use and other uh, closing of schools and, and being precautious? Have the Africans pretty much opened up, or is it still, you know, the, the highways are empty, um, the restaurants are closed, schools are managing? What, what's going on in the day-to-day -day world? No. You know, once again, uh, quite a big place. Uh, in general, schools yeah. seem to be the last thing that anybody uh, uh, opens. You know, that's going to have repercussions uh, in Africa and the rest of the world. Um, most of the other restrictions uh, are are pretty much off. Uh, in terms of mask wearing, I don't know if I, you know, I've been to enough places to really be able to, uh, to comment on that. But, uh, you know, you, you certainly see it in the once again, in the formal sectors and the restaurants, you know, they, they kind of do it. One thing that, you know, the police are pretty good at there, too. Uh, it is a chance sometimes for them to make a, a few extra dollars by, uh, let's say, enforcing uh, those type of rules, uh, you know, and collecting, uh, uh, in, informally uh, collecting the penalty right there. Uh, so from that standpoint, uh, you know, uh, Africa probably has some tools uh, uh, that, uh, that the U.S. doesn't in that standpoint. Less bribery in the U.S., huh? Um, all right, Ida, let's bring you back into the conversation. What, um, given, do you see in, um, let's break up the distinguish family members and close friends for a second. Um, how, how do you see or expect to see family gatherings deal with this mask issue? And maybe what, and what have you even noticed um, yourself um, in these sort of environments, is is trust really the issue, or is it you know just expectations of 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 having a little bit better knowledge of uh, family members' behavior than let's say a stranger? Yeah, I mean, I you know I don't want to speak anecdotally, but I I, I do think that the more intimate the relationship <laughs> is, the harder it is to negotiate mask use uh, because of the meanings that it, uh, that it includes. But I do think that it is a trust issue because um, I don't think that when people take the split second decision, if after they bit from their sandwich, they're gonna put their mask back on or keep it down, they're thinking about, well, where has the other been? Uh, they're looking around and seeing, well, how close am I to these people and are they wearing a mask or not, right? And then if, if you put it back on, that's saying something about who you are uh, and, about, and about your relationship with others. So I do think that, you know, so what I would expect to see um, is that there's a kind of linear relationship that the more intimate the relationships, the harder it is to maintain mask wearing unless everybody in the gathering is mask wearing, right? And this is where this kind of question of the kind of political meanings and identity meanings of mask wearing kind of intersect with, uh, with the questions of trust and intimacy and the meanings of relationships. Uh, so that's, that's my expectation. So in, in some sense, what I expect is uh, if you have a kind of open air gathering, uh, the, the more distant the people that you're going to see, the safer it is. Yeah. 
I also think there's some sort of inconsistency to your own behavior. Uh, I'll just give some example from last night. Uh, I went to a restaurant with another couple. While we were eating together, uh, no one would wear masks. And then when the waitress came over and she was wearing a mask, we all put our masks on as if somehow that she was so much more dangerous than our guests. Um, why is that that um, we, we have this, I call it dichotomous uh, relationship with the mask itself? And then that would be my first question. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. But I think, I think when you're thinking about like, a social interaction and that's the kind of thing that I really think about all the time and that's kind of the center of my work but an interaction is not one thing it's like a collection of situations that you're kind of moving between so like you have a new person come in the situation is redefined so that's exactly the point about like logically it makes you know it makes absolutely no sense but now that the situation has been redefined then it makes you know complete sense in the situation. Oh, now, now this is a mask wearing situation. And if you're thinking from a health perspective, the question is, how do you turn as many situations as possible into mask wearing situations so that you have as, as little inconsistency as possible? Yeah. Um, one of the interesting things that um, we discussed offline uh, about what happened in Malawi relates to condom use with the same lover. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, having uh, unprotected sex with someone who's HIV positive doesn't mean that you will necessarily get HIV from a single sexual act. Um, right. It may be very low, like 1%. And so if you don't wear a condom once, uh, you've taken some risk but that doesn't mean that on your next sexual act with the same individual, you shouldn't go back to using the condom. Um, why is it that once your, your observations in Malawi is that once you stopped wearing a condom, you continue to, to uh, you don't put it, you don't start using it for future uses. And do you expect that sort of logic incoherence to go with masks? In other words, if you started a conversation yeah. or had one single conversation with someone without wearing a mask, in the future, when you repeat additional conversations with the individual, should you go back to using masks even though you made a mistake the first time? Yeah, no, that's interesting. I mean, I think, I think that's definitely true in the case of Malawi. Again, you know, Sub-Saharan Africa is a huge place. But, but one of the things that we've found is that people overestimated risk, um, that, that, you know, a lot of the people that we talked to assumed that if they had one time unprotected sex, one time with somebody that had HIV, that's it. They have HIV. They will develop AIDS, um, which is not the case, and, and actually had some deleterious effects because because people said, well, you know, it doesn't matter anymore when 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 it does. I think the mask case here, I think, is actually different because um, my sense is that when people when somebody's not wearing a mask at a gathering, it is not that they assume that well, okay, now I've got COVID. So it doesn't matter. Um, my, my, my strong sense is that, 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 that these people will underestimate rather than overestimate uh, the, the risk of, have, of them having COVID, or at least not overestimate it, that their estimate wouldn't change uh, because in, in the encounter they didn't use a mask. So that's actually a very, very big difference between these two pandemics uh, in that regard. Um, 
And I think that has to do as well with, you know, but there's a slightly different question, which is, you know, the same person over and over again. Part of the question is, well, you know, again, it's a question of trust, right? If I've trusted you once, but now I put, you know, the next time I meet you, I put the mask on. Well, what does that mean now for, for, for our relationship, right? And I actually think it could have a kind of um, channeling effect, but not for the same reason. You really think that people are properly estimating the risk of COVID in their daily interactions? I mean, I, you know, we, we often hear that um, someone who has it generally can get a couple of people sick, um, but they right. have probably hundreds or thousands of interactions. Um, the person that you meet, probably the probability that he, has, he or she has COVID may be very, very small, like less than 1%. And the chance that in a conversation you would get it from them again is is tiny, probably less than one percent. You're looking at, you know, one a, a one in a thousand or one in ten thousand probability of any specific interaction causing it. But people are are kind of freaked out by it. Um, why do you think that people are getting the estimates right, or if they were informed of what the probability in any interaction was, uh, particularly between intimates? that they may be even much more aggressive in terms of non-mask using and proper and, and social gathering. Right. Well, you know, I think, I think that you make a good point. I mean, I think the truth is that I don't have a very good estimate right now of, of really how, how risky it is. And it has a lot to do with how, how long you are in with somebody in an open or closed environment, etc. So I, so it might be that people somehow uh, overestimate danger, but I think the point that I think the kind of differential point uh, is that I don't think that people who do not use masks then think that since they don't have, they haven't used masks, then they must have COVID and therefore they would not use a mask the next time. I think the mechanism here is very different. That was what I was trying to get at. And then I'm wondering what you think about kind of like longer term norms as it relates to mask wearing. So um, I used to live in Japan in the, in the 1990s. And when I did so, and someone wasn't feeling well, they would naturally just wear a mask um, right. at work, on the subways, walking down the street. And it was not considered, you know, unusual or, or bad practice uh, where that was never going on in the United States. Um, do you see that there'll be likely to be changes in long-term social norms as it relates to personal hygiene or expectations of using masks or, or the like after this whole thing is finished? Yeah. Well, so, sociologists are, 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 you know, sociologists are famously terrible at making predictions. Uh, but I would say that, you know, one of the, you know, when we think this, one of the big differences, uh, for example, between, uh, let's say, uh, Western Europe and, and Malawi, where I did my research, was exactly this question of the meaning of wearing a condom, where I think, um, you know, maybe wearing a condom with your husband would be incredibly hard uh, in, in Europe as it is in Malawi. But wearing a condom with somebody who you've just started a relationship with uh, in, in many European contexts is actually a no-brainer, right? It doesn't mean that you don't trust them. It's just the way things are done. Uh, and I do think that if if the pandemic continues, 
uh, for a while more, and these kind of norms of, of mask wearing would continue, the kind of question of what the meaning of mask use is may shift over time. Uh, and that both has, you know, effects on whether you would or wouldn't have them in kind of more intimate gatherings, but it would also, I think, carry over. So I, you know, cautiously, I would say that if it will go on for a while, I think you might see some changes uh, in in kind of general norms of, of handshaking uh, and, and perhaps of wearing masks. Patrick, before I get into your research, what are your thoughts on some of the work that Ido uh, has been talking about here? Well, it's fascinating to hear about because, you know, when you think back to the Ebola uh, uh, epidemic, it turned out in the end that culture was a huge part of of the response. Uh, and, you know, I think this was particularly true in, in Africa. Uh, my wife's in international public health and, and uh, you know, her conclusions were that it was really about changing behavior and that was very difficult and involved a deep understanding of cultural practices. So, you know, I love hearing Ido because it's it, culture doesn't get nearly enough attention when we think about what's going on at this moment. Uh, despite, you know, the experience of past practices, we haven't paid enough attention to uh, just to behave. What, what changes behavior? Uh, how do you understand behavior, partic particularly in this uh, uh, experience where it's a, a it, you know, behavior, collective behavior is what's going to matter right now in the absence of a therapeutic and in the absence of a vaccine, our behavior is what's going to matter. Uh, and yet we just, the policy discussions haven't focused nearly enough attention to what affects behavior. Okay. Let's move, uh, move to violence for a second. Um, in the, the first half of, of your conversation, you were talking about um, the incredible decline in violence that has occurred over the last couple of decades um, and kind of the positive feedback loops that have, caused, have come about because of that. Uh, and maybe there were some changing norms as it related to that violence wouldn't be tolerated in certain communities. The last time we saw a surge in violence in American cities in the late 1960s, it was coterminous with white flight of whites um, deciding that they, they didn't like that violence and decided to move to the suburbs, uh, leaving African-American communities in the cities. Um, and since then, over the last decade, decade and a half, we've seen a, a reverse migration back into American cities by whites. Um, the last couple of weeks have seen a, a shocking increase in violence in American cities. Um, and I guess I have a, a multiple-part question. Why is violence going up right now? And two, is, is there been a change in norms, particularly as it, where the violence had been, where it was in places like my home city of Chicago, been localized to the south and west sides and has moved into the predominantly white neighborhoods? Um, is that going to trigger another white flight? Um, and to what extent do, is this going to become the new normal? Um, yeah, so, so challenging questions. Um, I guess I, I, I'd say a few things. There is a, a, in a small number of cities, there is a huge surge in shootings, and, and uh, Chicago is, is certainly in the lead there, where there's just a really awful, horrific rise in violence this year. Um, and New York is another where there's been a big surge in shootings. 
not not nearly as as large a, sur a surge in murder or any other forms of, of crime. Um, but then there are other cities, Kansas City, Miami, several other cities where there is this this uh, real spike in in violence. Um, so how to understand it? This this happens. Uh, there is a tendency in the aftermath of high profile protests against police. There is a tendency for violence to rise. What's important is understanding why that happens. So it doesn't mean uh, that protests against police cause violence to rise. What it means is that in the aftermath of, of protests against police, particularly if they're high profile protests, um, then there is often a process of destabilization uh, where communities that have relied on the police to dominate public space for decades uh, suddenly have to create social order in a different way. And that happens for a couple of reasons. One reason is uh, when police step back from their role uh, in, in, in dominating uh, public space through any means necessary. That can happen because of changes in policy. It can happen because police officers are no longer, uh, no longer really have a clear understanding of what their role is and how to carry out their role. Um, and it can also happen when police consciously step back uh, and decide to leave communities on their own uh, in order to make a political statement um, or in order to avoid any any problems that can arise when they get involved uh, in potentially violent situations. The second reason it happens is when community residents step back and check out and decide to, you know, if this city doesn't value my role, if this city is not going to treat me like a human, I'm not going to take part in city life. I'm not going to cooperate uh, with law enforcement. I'm not going to give information about what's going on. I'm not going to call the police if there's a problem. So they're kind of, there are multiple changes that take place uh, in, in the aftermath of very high profile protests against police. But the, the key result frequently is destabilization in communities that have relied on the police to dominate public space. When the police step back, there's a destabilization. And that often, not always, but that often causes this kind of surge in violence. The last thing I'd say, uh, Larry, is that in the end, we will see that the violence is, in fact, concentrated in the same neighborhoods where it's always concentrated. There are uh, incidents that occur outside of those communities. You know, in Chicago, there's been looting outside of those communities. There yeah. are often sh short-term uh, spikes that occur or, or high-profile shootings that occur outside uh, the most disadvantaged neighborhoods. Um, in the end, like in New York right now, the surge is happening in the same neighborhoods where violence is always concentrated. And, uh, you know, my strong prediction is that that will be true in every city where there's a surge in violence. I, I don't doubt that, um, but let me just give, give the example of uh, an area near my apartment in downtown Chicago. Um, this is an area that has been historically unbelievably safe, even in the context of extreme violence on the west side. Um, you know, no murders, no robberies, no sexual assault. Um, but recently, um, in the last few weeks, um, there's been murders, sexual assault, and unprecedented looting um, and breaking into literally almost every single shop on the street. Um, and it happened once, and then it happened again last week um, 
with robberies that broke into all the major stores on Oak Street uh, and Neiman Marcus, uh, Kitty Corner to my house. Um, when this happens, um, there's, it's a complete shock to, to, the, to the people in the neighborhood. They thought it was, you know, they were unwilling to take any risk in terms of personal safety. They were just there for kind of like for fun. Um, will this change their desire to enjoy city life and will they pack their bags and, and abandon the city for the, a, a more peaceful suburban life following the white flight decisions that were made in the 1960s? Um, yes. So it, it's, it's possible, particularly in a city like Chicago, you know, I think this has been a concern. Uh, there was, there was a huge increase in, in, uh, I, I, I want to say 2015. Um, but it, it, I, I, I'm forgetting whether it's 2014 or 2015. Um, and, you know, and then in subsequent years, uh, violence dropped. Uh, and now this year we're back up to, uh, at least in terms of murder, uh, to that, uh, what the levels were at, in that surge year of 2014 or 2015, um, and actually above those levels. So this is a really, you know, it's, it's a crisis. Uh, it is absolutely a crisis. And Chicago always has, or usually has the most murders in the country, not the highest rate, but the most uh, in terms of raw numbers. Um, so it is a concern in, in Chicago. Um, I think in most cities, it's not a concern. Um, I, you know, I, I think there has been such a substantial change in the level of violence and uh, over time that this is really an anomalous period. Um, so it's a crisis, uh, you know, and, and we want to maintain the urgency, but um, again, Ito, Ito uh, made the great point that, you know, um, I think social scientists are not even great at explaining the past, let alone the future. So, um, so I don't want to go too far out on a limb, but we are in a period where, you know, we're in the safest period in the country's history. Uh, and, and it's important to keep that in mind. New York City is the safest that it's ever been uh, in the history of, of the city. Uh, and we've had and and there's been, you know, the increase in murder in New York is about a 30 percent increase. Uh, and so that's huge. That's a that's a big problem. Um, but it still means that we're going to have one of the safest years in New York City's history. So it's important to maintain urgency, but also just really be aware of the scale of change that's taking place. And in a few cities, uh, there is an absolute crisis, but it's not a large, uh, widespread uh, uh fundamental change in the nature of city life in, in the U.S. I want to turn to the concept of defunding the police and everything that sort of implies. Um, when I speak with some police officers, um, they're counting the days until they can retire. Uh, they feel that they've lost the public trust and therefore do not want the job. Um, what is the relationship going to look like between the police Force and its customers, the general public. Um, how will defunding uh, affect the interaction between police and the citizenry? Um, you know, you're, you're sounding hopeful that residents will step in and replace the police, but um, how do you see that evolution occurring, and will that mean changing norms back to the previous higher levels of violence in the interim? Yeah, so it's an important point. And, you know, I make the argument against defunding the police. Um, 
And, you know, the reason I make that argument is, is because of exactly uh, what I said a, a minute ago. When you have a social order where a certain institution is given responsibility for maintaining informal control over, over an area and really dominating public spaces, uh, and then that institution is dismantled or, or steps back from its role for whatever reason, you're going to have a period of destabilized communities and, and you're likely going to have a surge of violence. And, you know, so I wrote a piece in the Washington Post uh, several months ago, right when these conversations uh, started or in May, I guess. And, and uh, the argument that I made was that, you know, trying to vilify the police and really exact revenge against law enforcement at this moment uh, is probably not the right approach because it can lead to a surge of violence, which then makes residents more punitive, which then translates into trying to find, you know, reaction or, or an immediate reaction of how to shut down uh, this surge of violence by any means necessary. That's how we got to this point. Uh, that's how we got to a situation where we've relied so heavily on incarceration and and uh, law enforcement to deal with not just violence, but to deal with all of the challenges that come uh, when uh, cities are so unequal and, and uh, have so many social problems that come with concentrated poverty. Um, so the argument I make is that we should not be defunding the police right now, but we should be investing in other institutions that can play a more central role in looking out over communities, making sure people are safe, but also making sure that everybody's welcome in the community, uh, that everyone is cared for, that no one slips through the cracks. Um, and, you know, this is an argument for investment in other institutions uh, to deal with problems like mental illness, addiction, uh, to deal with after-school programs or to create after-school programs, summer jobs and so forth. This is an argument that by and large, uh, representatives of law enforcement have been pushing for for a long time. There are very few police officers or chiefs of police who will not agree with the, the observation that law enforcement has been given way too much responsibility and, is, and has been asked, that, or at least by default has been asked, to deal with all of these challenges that come uh, when there are areas of concentrated poverty uh, and when cities are so unequal. Um, so police agree with this. And, and you know, uh, I think law enforcement thinks it's unfair. I think it's unfair to give all the, the challenges that, that come in our cities uh, to, to police. So that's why I really I make the case for investing in alternative institutions who can play a, a more central role in responding uh, to the challenge of violence, but all, also to all of the other challenges that come bundled up when poverty is concentrated in space. Well, well sometimes, and I know Forrest Stewart's talked about this, um, the police are encouraged to um, push individuals into some of these NGO programs uh, or give them the choice of, of going to jail, one or the other, and uh, being the firm hand into an AA program, for example. Um, how do you feel about the police in integrating their activities with NGOs specifically? Um, yeah, that can work. Um, it also can can fall apart. So yeah, Forrest, work, Forrest Stewart's work is, is a great example. Um, 
uh, of how law enforcement can uh, work with other institutions. Um, there's other work, Victor Rios has, has done some work out in California showing that these kinds of reforms uh, and, and kind of shifts in the goals or at least the approach taken by law enforcement uh, reforms meant to build trust and gain legitimacy uh, do sometimes tend to break down uh, when, when uh, police officers who are used to uh, expecting compliance uh, and immediate compliance um, and used to really taking the role of, of dominating a space and dominating an interaction, when they're asked to take a different role, um, it's, it's a challenge. You know, it's a shift in culture. It's a shift in tactics and approach. Uh, and so Victor Rios's work is, is um, I think, very valuable in showing how um, these programs, even when there's buy-in, even when there's buy-in from, from uh, police officers in a department, uh, can start to break down and old habits of expecting compliance and then demanding compliance through force um, can reemerge. So I do think this is a positive development, uh, and certainly there are uh, examples of departments uh, that, have, that have really started to change the way that they do their job and, and have shifted toward the goals of trying to build trust and, and regain a sense of legitimacy within the community. Um, but, you know, there are some of those same departments were the ones that were out, uh, you know, being recorded really uh, in some ugly incidents um, over the past few months, uh, you know, in, in terms of their response to the protest. So um, what I'd say is that uh, these kinds of reforms are essential and uh, I think it's a positive development. Um, but I do kind of, I understand the argument made by people who say that this institution, you know, has fundamentally become an authoritarian institution and a violent institution. And, you know, I don't buy into that argument 100 percent, but I, but I understand that argument. And can you comment a little bit about the programs that um, that are are successful in reducing violence in the community? You mentioned uh, becoming a man. You mentioned some of the summer job programs. Um, are these scalable? Why do you think they worked? What were they doing right? Why did they have such a positive success? Yeah, so the, there's this kind of distinction in how to think about these programs. On the one hand, you can think about the specific models being implemented and kind of have faith that the model is really the appropriate model uh, to, to reduce violence. Um, and on the other, you can think about just what happens when there's an organization that has the funds that it needs and that has the leadership and, and the professional uh, staff uh, and the dedication and the passion that it needs to be successful. I kind of uh, um, tend to side on, on the latter explanation. Um, what I've seen is that when uh, community organizations, typically nonprofits, are, have a staff that is uh, professional, dedicated, well-trained, um, and uh, funded, at a level where the organization is not fighting for its survival on a month-to-month -month basis, but knows it's going to be there, knows that it has a capacity to really put in the time for training and evaluation and assessment uh, and, and professionalization, uh, then those organizations have a tendency to be effective no matter what they're doing. Now, that said, there have been certain models that have been particularly effective, cognitive behavioral therapy, 
uh, when combined with, you know, summer jobs, when combined with uh, after-school programs, when combined with uh, uh, employment training programs, as is being done in a program called the Ready Program, uh, being uh, implemented in Chicago right now with the highest risk participants, people who are at extreme risk of either being a victim or a perpetrator of gun violence. Um, these, these programs uh, with cognitive behavioral therapy um, have, have a good track record. Uh, you know, they've all been evaluated with the most rigorous methods and uh, the impacts, which I, you know, I talked about very briefly uh, earlier, but have shown just extraordinary impacts on the likelihood that participants are going to become uh, enmeshed in networks of, of, of violence. Um, reducing violence by, you know, 40 percent, 50 percent, which is, and, and for several years down the line in some cases. Um, so those are some programs that have uh, built up an extraordinary track record. Many of them run out of the crime lab in Chicago. Um, but then there are the, the other programs that um, are not dealing with people at all, but that are dealing with spaces. And so I think the, the program run by the Philadelphia Horticultural Society uh, where abandoned lots in, in Philadelphia, which are problem spots, which are areas uh, w when they are abandoned, they become vulnerable to violence. Uh, and so the program run in Philadelphia uh, randomized which of these lots we would be uh, taken over and redesigned and greened and made a, made a public space. Um, and, you know, in and around those lots, uh, there was a 40% reduction in violence relative to the control group lots, which didn't get the the, uh, the same redesign. Uh, so those are a few examples of things going on. Um, uh, but I do think the key is, is really investing in, in the kinds of organizations that see it as their role to look out over public space and make sure uh, people are taken care of and everyone's safe within a community. We've just never given those programs a central role uh, in, the, in, the, um, uh, in the effort to control violence. Well, I mean, Jane Jacobs used to talk about that as, you know, that local landlady across the street would observe, um, and then when there was trouble, would call in law enforcement if there was a problem. Um, and if anything, you know, we had a, a conversation about policing in Baltimore a few weeks ago, um, and they said that, you know, the lady continues to call 911, and, and it overwhelms the 911 ability to, uh, to properly police, you know, it's if you notice it still combines the oversight if you will or the interaction still requires the use of police to kind of put things at, at bay yeah in some cases so that jane jacobs model of the eyes on the street is uh is the basis for for kind of uh, you know and and i think most people understand this that you know when there are uh, concerned residents, and, and, and it is also organizations, you know, residents and organizations um, who see it as their street and see it as their responsibility to make sure that people walking through that street are welcomed and safe. Uh, that's what creates a safe community. Um, yeah, and so in a lot of places that does combine with uh, law enforcement, not, not everywhere. You know, I think, I think a, we know that most crimes are not reported to the police, um, uh, even serious crimes. Most are, are not reported to the police. We know that from victimization surveys. Um, but B, there, there are also lots of local actors who play this role of, of de-escalation and mediation and, uh, and can play it successfully. Um, now, 
you know, sometimes that, that role is played by a cop. And, and it's, there's certainly, particularly in the U.S. where there's such levels of, of gun violence, you know, I, I definitely do see a role for law enforcement to continue to, um, to, to be on call, uh, particularly to respond to incidents of gun violence. Um, but, you know, this, there are also lots of, lots of other actors within communities that can play that role and can play it effectively if they have the cultural authority of being able to step in and, and being able to demand respect from, from parties involved in, in an altercation. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, I, I certainly, you know, um, I've been accused of being anti-police and, and a police apologist. So uh, I get criticism from both sides, but I certainly do see a role for law enforcement uh, uh, along with other institutions who should have more capacity and more investment in, in responding to violence. What are your thoughts on, on bail reform? Um, some of the police in Chicago were complaining that they had just, um, they arrest the, the looters and then they're, um, they're brought in and then they're almost immediately released. Is, is that having a, a negative consequence in the sense that it reinvigorates the looting types to continue as is because they re recognize the limitations of the state to hold them? Yeah, I mean, I think we need a different system to engage people who are at risk and particularly at high risk of, of taking part in violence. Uh, so it's very hard to, to have this kind of dramatic shift in policy um, without any any change in crime or, or violence. Uh, and, you know, I feel for the intentions behind, uh, you know, the shifts in, in how we deal with bail, the bail system are exactly right. You know, it's an injustice uh, and we have to deal with injustices. Um, I guess, you know, what I would argue for in thinking about any of these these challenges, how do we deal with the injustice of police violence? Um, well, one strategy is to exact balance, uh, exact revenge and try to dismantle uh, the police. But another approach is to say, okay, well, the common outcome here is how do we have safe neighborhoods? How do we generate public safety and well-being? And if we're guided by that as an outcome, then we come up with a different set of solutions. We come up with solutions. Okay, how can other institutions engage people uh, instead of just, you know, ending bail and putting people out on on the street on their own, not engage with any institutions, not engage with support systems, um, how can we actually uh, uh, use, ex uh, utilize other institutions within a community to engage these people and to give them another, another uh, way to reintegrate uh, within their community? So it's really like it's, it's a shift in how we think about these problems. And injustice uh, that is very obvious, doesn't have to be met by, by simply dismantling or vilifying an institution uh, like the court system or like the criminal justice system or the uh, law enforcement. Um, if we recognize this injustice and then think about alternatives with a common outcome in mind, like how do we create safe neighborhoods, I think we can move toward much better uh, solutions. Okay. All right. Um, the next part of the show is going to be a return to optimism. Um, I like to ask each speaker to reflect on what we might be missing that is optimistic um, and we may have missed. Sometimes we could focus uh, predominantly on the, on the negative, the, the death rates of epidemics and emerging market defaults, et cetera. Um, so let's start with Alejandro Werner. Alejandro, um, what, are you, what are you optimistic about? What, what are we missing that 
is something we should think of, of positively what's going on out there. Well, I mean, obviously, I mean, the, the acceleration of the adoption of new technologies. No? So I think after this, we will see, uh, and during this, we're seeing a huge increase in the speed at which new technologies are being uh, adopted. And I think that will, uh, uh, can be very beneficial. And, and, and actually, we can see that this could be the first crisis in which a GDP eventually comes back to the pre-crisis trend. Uh, that is something that we have never seen after a large uh, economic crisis. And secondly, I think in some countries in Latin America, I mean, we, we can hope for uh, these huge health shocks, that it's a completely external shock, et cetera, to open the door uh, to some kind of grand bargain uh, and that could lead the way towards an important uh, agreement that will accelerate the pace of reforms in Latin America and actually help the continent to, to speed up the pace of a, a growth and social inclusion. That's hope. But, okay, I like it. Yeah. Um, just just a, as a follow-up question to your, um, your V-shaped recovery that gets us back on the trend, is it more like, so COVID wasn't a, um, a financial institution collapse. Um, it's more like an earthquake or a hurricane, where the hurricane itself doesn't really damage um, the buildings, but just everyone ran up into the hills for six months and then returns back to the beach. Um, is that what distinguishes it? It's, it's like a, we, we fought a war without blowing anything up and getting people killed? Why, yeah, why is this? No, no, you're right. Why I mean, the way COVID, I mean, the economic crisis triggered by COVID it's a crisis that has not been triggered by previous excesses. So in a way, it is not like uh, you overspend in real estate, uh, and, then, and therefore you were growing at a much higher pace than normal before, and that correction has to be taken into account, and therefore you never go back to that pre-shock trend of growth that you had. That's one. Uh, the only thing is for that to happen, uh, uh, countries have to be very uh, attentive that uh, negative legacies from COVID, from COVID are actually dealt with. So if you actually do not, I mean, those countries that are not putting in place programs to help uh, families that are being, uh, that are losing their jobs and do not have, uh, some of those families can go into uh, criminal activities and then they will not come back to the previous activities that they had before. Or you can have firms that are going bankrupt. And then to set up a business in Latin America will take you half a year or a year. So, so if, if you actually uh, deal with, it, with, it, with the effects of COVID in the right way, you might have uh, this effect in which you go back relatively quickly to the pre-COVID uh, level of GDP. And then you will also have the advantages of uh, the acceleration of the adoption of new technologies. So, so, so that will be the hopeful, the hopeful view of this V-shaped uh, recovery and actually uh, uh, coming back to pre-levels, uh, pre-COVID levels of GDP and even an acceleration of growth after that. Thank you. Uh, Miguel, you're up next. You know, I've known you for 25 years and over that 25-year period, there have only been a few times I've met you where you seemed optimistic, but try to dig deep. What are you optimistic about? 
Miguel, your mute button might be on. All right, it appears we may have lost Miguel. Hurley, you're up next. What do you what do you see optimistic out there? Well, uh, you know, I see Africa as a large and important and growing part of humanity, and I'm optimistic because it looks like it's not going to get uh, uh, completely crushed uh, by by the pandemic, and that uh, you know the, we're not going to see large losses of life. And you know, when I Last spoke last time, as you said, you know, the fact that there's only a couple hundred uh, ventilators in, in some of these countries, uh, you know, was a real uh, reason for pessimism, and uh, that is uh, that has gone away. So that's uh, what I'm optimistic about. Uh, the people and the businesses, uh, they are resilient, and uh, uh, they remain resilient, and, you know, I think uh, uh, the, the, the comeback is uh, underway. Lee, usually your clients call you when it's basically at the end of their ropes, but I'm calling you to, to think about it. Uh, why should we be optimistic about emerging markets and sovereign debt? Larry, I think uh, there is room for optimism in the reaction of the multilateral institutions to this crisis. They have shown themselves to be more resilient, more innovative. Uh, than some of us might have expected them to be. Uh, And I believe uh, as the crisis unfolds, uh, the role of the IMF, the World Bank, the G20, uh, is going to prove to be more resilient than perhaps some pessimists uh, uh, think they will be. And I, I, I think they have they have behaved in a commendable way thus far. Great. Um, Ido, what can you say optimistic about uh, our world? Well, I'm an optimistic guy, but I think what I, what, what makes me optimistic a little bit in the context of what I said is just, you know, I've, I've moved to Brooklyn, uh, you know, close to Prospect Park, and of course not all neighborhoods have parks. And, and you know, in these kinds of public spaces, but to see people interacting in public space and kind of taking on public space because they need to in order to sustain relationships now. Um, but I think it's also a kind of moment of appreciation of what public spaces are and what they can be. And you know, and I think that may be something that we take away from this pandemic. So that's one. And just the implication that should we be investing more in public spaces? To I generally think that's time? definitely the, I definitely think that's that's the case. I mean, um, I mean, this is one of these amenities that become incredibly important in certain junctures, not only in certain ages, but also as we're finding out at certain kind of historical moments, where suddenly being indoors. Uh, becomes problematic for various reasons. So having this outdoors as a resource, as a place uh, that can sustain social relationships, I think is, is incredibly important. You know, in the weeks ahead, we're going to have conversations about education and educating K-12 specifically and the implications on, on young adults, this experience. Um, and society has been making the decision now to extend 
the online versus the in-person schooling for, uh, for very young kids. How do you think that will affect their lives and their ability to engage in social intercourse? I think it's difficult, and I think, you know, and here I, I speak not so much as a sociologist, perhaps, as more of a parent to small children. Uh, it's difficult. But, you, but one of the really interesting things that you see, I think, is, is how resilient children are as long as they, they get support at home. And even after very long periods of, of not seeing other kids, how quickly they can resume friendships and resume play. Uh, so I think I think you know obviously children are are bearing the brunt of some of this, um, but I but I do think that uh, that their resilience is something that that is hopeful. Okay, Patrick, what about you? What do you see out there to be hopeful about? Um, well, you know, just to follow up on one thing Ido said, the 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 return of public space and and public parks. You know, that's that's like that, I agree, is just a transformation uh, for people who knew New York City 25 years ago. You know, I think the way that public spaces uh, are used has completely transformed as as they become safe. Um, so just iterate that point, reiterate that point um, for me. Yeah, a related phenomenon is the emergence of mutual aid uh, as kind of a a common response and a and a um, widely held um, uh, response uh, uh, feeling sentiment that we owe each other something uh, at this moment um, at this moment when you know lots of people are struggling but not everyone is struggling and so it's a moment where I think our nation's unique and very extreme form of inequality uh, has has uh, looks different to a lot of people. A lot of people across the country are are thinking about what they can do for their neighbors, and that has really manifested in in an explosion of mutual aid organizations. And so for me, that that is a huge source of hope. Um, I've started reading the work of of Rebecca Solnit, who makes this point. Um, but that makes me optimistic. Great. All right, so that ends uh, this week's session. I want to make a plug for the next couple of weeks. Uh, next week on What Happens Next, we will focus on gang violence in Chicago, the history of public health, uh, particularly the sewers in Paris, and a controversy over monuments, where we'll have three speakers discuss different angles of that highly topical subject. Um, and then in two weeks, I'm very excited about our August 30 event, which will be a special episode on young adults. I've selected 10 young adults to speak for three minutes each about their personal challenges in the COVID world. And we will also have um, a relatively famous college admissions officer, the retired president of the ACT test, and a psychiatrist who specializes in youth mental health. And the following week will be uh, focused on K-12 education. All right, with that, I'd like to thank our speakers uh, for their time and for participating in today's event. I would also like to thank our listeners for their uh, attention. Thank you very much uh, for participating. Goodbye. Thanks, guys.